Thanks for listening. For earlier access to these episodes, access to Ask Me Anything sessions, and extended breakdowns of historical and current events, please consider joining our warning premium community by clicking the link in the description to this episode. I'm very pleased today to be joined by 3rd District Arizona Congressman Ruben Gallego, a candidate of the Democratic Party for the United States Senate, uh, one of the most interesting members of Congress currently serving of the 435, uh, a person that I regard as somebody uh, who is an idealist, uh, a conviction-based politician in an era of cynicism, uh, precisely the type of person that you want in public service. Um, I, I don't think that politics should be an issue litmus test. It, it should be a character-based enterprise. And so that's why I'm so pleased to be able to be joined by Ruben Gallego. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Um, I want to start with your first government service. Um, take us back to arriving at Marine Corps Recruit Depot. Were you West Coast or were you at Paris Island? I was at Paris Island. And take us to that moment where the bus pulls into the Paris Island gates with 20-year-old Ruben Gallego aboard? 20, yeah. I mean, I was excited. This is something that I'd always wanted to do. Um, I wanted to serve my country. And, you know, I joined, you know, pre-9-11. Uh, because, uh, you know, not that I wanted to go to war, not that uh, I did not want to go to war, but I, you know, wanted to repay my country in a small way. And that small way I thought about was being in the Marine Corps Reserves. Um, you know, I'm the son of immigrants and uh, through ups and downs, you know, uh, a lot at that point in my life, a lot more downs uh, than ups, the country had always uh, really taken care of me. And I felt that as a first generation uh, American that I needed to find at least a small repayment to that. And I had found the opportunity to do that uh, in a weird way. I got kicked out of Harvard uh, and they told me to go take some time off or transfer school, transfer to another school. Uh, and I decided that I'll take sec option number two, which is take some time off and reapply to, to finish your degree. And so that's what I did. I used my time off to join the Marine Corps. I uh, became a reservist, uh, infantryman. That's what I always loved the infantry, loved always imagined myself being an infantryman. Uh, and, uh, you know, got on that on that bus. And I really didn't tell people uh, much of anything, actually. Um, I certainly didn't tell any of my uh, Marine buddies or my drill instructors that I had been at Harvard or that I was planning going back to Harvard because I knew that that's, that was going to be a whole lot of three months of pure hazing. <laughs> so I actually kept it off my records and it wasn't really until two months into my uh, three month uh, uh, boot camp that one of my friends messed up and sent me a, a, a course book for me to start picking out my classes because Harvard had reaccepted me in the meantime while I was still uh, in training. And at that point, my drill instructors just lit me up uh, for one whole month, just, just good old fashion Marine Corps hazing. And, uh, you know, it was fine with me. I, you know, I was older than most of them, the, the boys there. I was two years older. Um, and really after a week, a lot of the, the, the drill instructors understood that, you know what, that I was a good, good Marine, that I was going to be a good Marine. And, you know, they, uh, they, they laid off me largely for me, 
uh, you know, being a, the, their whole big problem was the fact that I was enlisted and not going to be an officer. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you remember the first thing the drill instructor said to you? When uh, I got off the, uh, uh, yeah, I, well, not the first, first thing, I'm sure there was a lot of things. It was kind of a really groggy night. I mean, the, the, the way that we get down there from Boston from where I joined, you have to, I remember I was like taking a couple of legs of different flights and then you uh, boarded a bus in, uh, I think it was like Charleston in the middle of the night. Um, the first thing I got there uh, was that I remember was I, they asked us to pull out um, a piece of paper and to start writing uh, our letters to our family saying, we got here, right? That was the the first, opp first opportunity really to, to contact your family. And so I remember getting a piece of paper and then getting a notebook and actually using the notebook to to write on the, make it easier to run. And he just came and slapped that notebook out of my hand uh, and just yelled at me, you know, saying, recruit, did I tell you to pick up anything else besides the, the piece of paper and this pencil? And, you know, I said, no, sir. And then that's when I got hit, not hit, but that's when he na nailed me uh, for, for, you know, jumping uh, and using the word, I think I used the word I, sir, or something like that. And you, there's a lot of words you're not supposed to use when you're in boot camp, but um, that was my first real, real indication about where I was, where I was at when he told me, like, why did you pick up that pad of paper? That was very specific. And uh, it was a definitely something that's kind of just stuck in my brain. Not a lesson they teach at Harvard, but Marine Corps has a tried and true approach, apparently. It does work. I mean, look, there, a lot of the stuff that I've actually used in politics, uh, some of it actually comes from Marine Corps training. And it's simple stuff like discipline, focus, but even other kind of values that I think are very important. 9-11 happens and you wind up in Iraq and you wind up with the storied uh, 3rd Battalion, 25th Marines in Lima Company. And this goes on to become the highest casualty unit in Iraq during your service, which you do not as an officer, uh, as an enlisted man. You're a Lance Corporal. Yep. Yeah, I was the assistant machine gunner on a, on a fire team. So you that's as low as you can get. And, you know, we were a merged unit. Um, I I was an infantryman. Uh, they were asking for infantrymen uh, when we, we got activated. And so I uh, stuck with the, the guys that I had trained with and, you know, proud of my service. You know, I'm never... Uh, never going to deny that, I, you know, it, was, it wasn't hard. Uh, I, I wasn't a, a hero of any sort, um, you know, no bronze stars or any of that stuff. Uh, but I did my job as an infantryman and I took care of my Marines and more and just as important took care of my dignity and honor. How does, how does that affect you when you see a general officer coming down the committee aisle way? Uh, about to sit before you, flanked by the phalanx of aides. You have talked about the fact you don't like it when a member of Congress addresses a general officer in, yes, the, in the Army as a yes, sir. They're not yeah. in the chain of command. The appropriate title is general. Famous story, FDR called everybody uh, by their first names, uh, with one exception, and, and that was General Marshall. Uh, who told him quite directly that he that he wanted to be called general, um, whether it was the King of England, everybody FDR mm -hmm. was on the was on the first name. But what what do you see when when you see a major general or a lieutenant yeah. general, one of the one of the big guys coming down 
coming down the aisle? Well, I think the, the first thing that I see is that, you know, civilian authority should be that. It is civilian authority over the military. And I don't like it when politicians call military officials by, call them sir. You can call them by their rank and title. I think that's that's fine. Uh, but calling them sir means that you are subservient to that. And that's not the way this constitution is is set up. That's not the way that our civilian military divide is. And I think it's a very bad message to send out to even our our public because again, it's the mil the civilian side that's in charge of that. Number two, we need to preserve the jurisdiction of the civilian side of control of the military to also question um, the military. Because there are times, actually there's lots of times, where the military has been wrong. The military was wrong about Afghanistan. We should have pulled out of Afghanistan a long time ago. We should have pulled it on, out under Obama. We should have pulled out uh, under Trump. Uh, you know, we could all have discussions about what happened under Biden. I think he did the right thing. There could have been a better way for do it to do it, to be honest. But if it wasn't for Biden making that final push to get it done, we would still be in Afghanistan because all these generals didn't they none of them wanted to be the last general to lose Afghanistan. So instead, we lost all these men that I served with, seven and women, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old boys, because these men, and I, I can say at least at the general officer level, these men were afraid of their pride. And then it drives me even crazier when those generals that cause a lot of these mistakes are kind of trotted out every cycle to bring their opinion even back, you know, now they come back as consultants to the, you know, to the armed services committee. And so that's my problem. The other thing, and this is the thing that, that really frustrates me kind of now being at the top level of, of the decision-making process and, and, uh, and jurisdiction of, of power over these things is that when, when they talk about the use of military force, they're always talking in this kind of like grander esoteric kind of idea of it. They forget that there is a, a very, very scared 18, 19 year old man or woman. That's the first person that has to make that first action. And I remember, you know, one of a, a good example when I was, and I was 25 when I was in Iraq and I was considered old, one of the largest operations that we did that, uh, uh, that year, uh, my, platoon was the first motion to move movers in that. And I was the first fire team. And I was the first guy of my fire team to step off our vehicle and have to go and run and secure, uh, you know, some space to make sure that insurgents didn't leave. So this whole great plan that was planned by these great, I'm sure generals and colonels was all dependent on me and, and, you know, a bunch of other guys uh, on average were only in our early twenties making sure we did everything. But I guarantee you, they don't think about us. They only think about this. And this is how we end up in situations where I was, where the reason we lost so many men was because they didn't give us the armor that we needed. They didn't give us the, enough manpower considering the, the area that they wanted us to to control. I mean, they wanted us to control near the sides of West Virginia with you know maybe the quarter of the, the men that we actually needed. And that's because you know these politicians, these you know generals, these these big think tank geniuses never really think about you know the little guy when it comes to you know honestly when shit hits the fan. So so you have an institution, the Pentagon, which is 
the most respected institution in the country by by rank order of of institutions. But I don't think necessarily the American people are admiring the management of the Pentagon, the bureaucracy of the Pentagon, uh, the decision making of the brass in the Pentagon. They're admiring the core the core values, values and then of the service. And so this is an institution that has really fulfilled Eisenhower's warning to the country uh, at the end of his presidency. Ike says to the country, the tradition of our country is that we have not had a permanent armaments industry, that we could turn our plowshares into swords when necessary. But now, in the aftermath of World War II and the security challenges, we have this permanent industrial complex, and he warned about it. So jumping forward here, I guess 60 years, it is so big, none of the Pentagon can pass a basic audit to know where any of the trillion dollars goes. So I guess my question for you is, when you hear the recommendations, you hear the assertions about our posture in the Pacific vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese, uh, Commandant of the Marine Corps says the Marines are at 36% strength. Uh, from a munitions perspective, um, we have uh, quantities of munitions uh, that will, from an inventory perspective, last a week. Um, we have carriers that are susceptible to Chinese hypersonic missiles carrying 5,300 American sailors and Marines with seemingly very little imagination on the part of policy policymakers that a near-peer adversary could sink one of those carriers in the in the Taiwan Straits. How do you think about these issues at a dangerous moment in the world? Do we need a bigger Navy? Do we need a bigger Marine Corps? Do we need increased expenditures? Do we need different types of appropriations within the Pentagon budget? What do you say to people who say that we need to cut it? Or is it a question of efficiency? Very difficult argument to make. Hey, I need constantly more money. Uh, if I was sitting in your shoes as a Republican member of Congress, my, my, my constant answer would be, Admiral, you got to pass an audit before you get more money. Simple, simple as that. I, I think we need to match, the way to think about it, I think we need to match our security threats to what we need. Sometimes we're not actually matching a security threat to what we need. We're matching what maybe the national you know, defense industry wants or for this kind of grander, you know, I think grander idea of what we should be doing around the world. Um, I, right now, I do think that we are, our, our budget is, is way oversubscribed. I do think that we need cuts and, and efficiencies. I think particularly what happens in Ukraine is going to be a big, big determinant of what we do. I think what we know now is that Russia is a secondary power with nuclear weapons. We know that with proper training, Eastern Europe, uh, with some small backing from the United States, will always will be able to deter uh, Russia, especially now that Finland and Sweden are joining uh, NATO. You're going to have, you know, essentially a true alliance from the, you know, the northern, uh, you know, I'm sorry, to, from the Arctic Circle all the way down to the Mediterranean to a point where we can very much contain uh, Russia. And what that means is I think we can start really shifting a lot of our budget priorities away from Europe 
and looking at what truly is a you know a, a danger zone, the Indo-PACOM area. But it doesn't mean what we do is we take all the money and all the armaments from uh, Europe and just throw them all into this small little area of uh, Indo-PACOM because there aren't that many spaces for us to put our, our manpower, our pre-positioning uh, military capabilities. Uh, and the bigger you are, the more targets you are. Like you mentioned about hypersonic missiles hitting our, our cruise ships, right? So we're going to have to, I think we should do a rebalancing that actually matches the real threat. What is the real threat? Is China creating a scenario that uh, invades Taiwan and then kind of end up, ends up creating a kind of a growth of a, a war within that area? But what we should probably try to focus is, is how to defend Taiwan with the least amount of manpower uh, that we can't. And I think right now having eight aircraft carriers that could all get knocked out with hypersonics, by the way, not in the Straits of Taiwan anymore, now in between Guam and, and Taiwan, which tells us it's even a bigger danger, um, that is not a, a, a way to really stop uh, China. And then we have a secondary problem. What do we do with the political situation when two aircraft carriers go down and we have to explain to people how we got into the situation and why we're going to continue sacrificing in this very tense situation? So helping Taiwan defend itself to be goal number one, but number two, always explain to people, big is not always better. And then when it comes to the military budgets, bigger and more bloated can also be extremely dangerous uh, to the point where we end up being less combat efficient than when we were smaller and more agile. Hey, that's a profoundly important point and one that's not made very often in Washington, D.C. And you certainly have the expertise to make it both uh, from your legislative experience, but but also from your lived experience as an enlisted combat soldier in the, in the Marine Corps. You are in this Senate race uh, running against Kristen Sinema. What, what is your... What is your top line criticism of her? She is. Well, I mean, honestly, like it's, she's disconnected. Um, you hardly see her in Arizona. And when she is here, she only is answering to the elites of Arizona. If you are an everyday constituent and you want to meet with Kirsten Sinema, she will not give you that time of day unless there's a check attached to that. But you know, that's not just her. This is this is a problem with politicians all over this country nowadays. They don't meet with their constituents, right? I, I you know, I, I, I have a monthly town hall and it is shocking the amount of members, sorry, constituents from other congressional districts that come to my town hall because their congressman is not talking to them. And so when Kirsten hasn't had a town hall in four years, that's a problem. But the problem is, She'll do things such as, you know, vote to preserve, uh, you know, uh, some of the benefits that the prescription drugs companies get, you know, so they don't have to compete uh, in their pricing. You know, that's her prerogative to do it, but at least come back and explain yourself and talk to your constituents about it. And she never did that. So that's the most important thing. Her values are no longer aligned with Arizona values, and she's completely disconnected from, from them. I think that one of the things in politics is that and I'd like to get your reaction to this, this idea that we have outrun the labels that we attach. So 
you will be routinely described as a progressive. Um, I well, spent most of my socialist, right? And I spent now, now they like now they're using pedo groomers or something like that. Yeah, and I, I have all that, um, you know, from from opposing Trump, and yep. you know, was on the Trump bomber list, and 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 all all the crazy all the crazy stuff. Uh, I spent most of my career in the Republican Party. I served in the Bush White House. I grew up in a tradition of moderate Republicanism. I'm I'm from the state of New Jersey, but I wonder when we talk about progressivism today. What I hear you talking about is a rejection of corporatism and corruption of a system that I think is very badly broken and I think very analogous to the period of time at the beginning of the 20th century where we had the launch of a progressive movement that really reoriented society and reweighted it on, the, on behalf of what you have termed the little guy. Uh, against big. And so do, do you have a point of view as you kind of look out in politics that informs you about big, big tech, big banks, big defense, big pharma, big media, big politics? Because from where I sit, right, the, the days of making an investment in a stock, we're looking for value, competing against the uh, the the technology, the traders, the machine, all of it, right? It's none of it is rigged to create a level playing field mm -hmm. for the proverbial little guy, right? And 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 so so talk about how you see the world from that from that perspective, if you would, mm -hmm. you know, without as much as you can the traditional kind of political labels of the moment. I think, I mean, I think the most important thing to remember, being uh, an anti-corporatist or anti-big corporation does not mean you're anti-capitalist. If anything, the big, the it is better for capitalism not to have these big corporations of course. That end up taking, they end up creating, you know, monopolies, right? And mo monopolistic economies by nature are anti-capitalist and end up becoming, you know, somewhat of a, a government entity onto themselves in terms of they're able to control power. And so what it what matters to me and my whole kind of like perspective when it is people versus corporations, people versus government, people versus your, your military industrial complex is that um, it, that it cannot be slanted against the the people, right? There's a reason why we have gotten together you know, as a country and have decided that we are a, you know, democracy and, and of course, you know, our con with our constitutional republic origins. And we have decided that we are going to be a hedge against the power of bigness, essentially. And so when there are rules that are stacked to basically help those that have a lot of power, whether it's elites, whether it's big corporations, whether it's politicians, it is the role, I think, of electeds like us to be the advocate, the fighters, and the lobbyists for those that can pay for it. And so I say this all the time. You know, for example, Health Pharma has three lobbyists for every member of Congress. Three. So there's 535 members of Congress. There's probably 1,600-ish registered pharma lobbyists. That and they spend how much lobbying a year? $185 million dollars a year lobby in american money 
in American money. And we, that doesn't count what happens in stakes, right? So the little guy that wants to have cheaper drug prices, unless there is somebody fighting for them because they believe in actually being their advocate, their lobby, is never going to have a chance. So I want to, I want to have this country for so long. You know, this, there's a reason we have prioritized the profits of gross profits. Cause I'm not against profits. Again, you could be a capitalist uh, in this society, but they've capitalized. They've been more emphasizing gross profits for these companies than for taking care of people in terms of even smaller companies. These companies get so big and become so monopolistic. It doesn't encourage capitalism because you can't even get in there because they have so much power. And then, so what is that? What happens, right? The whole system is is corrupt because people can't compete and there's no competition. You know, corporations get lazy. But then also, the consumer itself has less options, and so that causes inflationary prices to go up. So this is the the perspective we should all keep: is we should there needs to be the balance, and the people that create that balance is is people that are elected in office. Now, one of the things that I think is really interesting about you is the sense of gratitude that you have. And so you talked earlier about your parents, um, about being in an immigrant family. And so it's not until you get to Harvard and you get to a dorm room <laughs> which for 99.99999% percent of your fellow Harvard students is a big come down arriving right. in that dorm room from wherever it is that they arrived from almost universally so but for you That's this this is a this is a big step up tell 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 us about that well it was my, it was the first bed that i had uh in about uh probably 8 to 9 years uh so Again, I'm very grateful for what this country has been. That's that's what I wanted. That's where I wanted. That's where I wanted to talk about the conversation, right? Your sense of gratitude, because I think there's so many people out there, young people. You say so much that the comp the country gave me, right? But it didn't give you things, right? It did. Give me opportunity, right? Country gave you opportunity. Yeah. And 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 you're a person, and I and I found this fascinating uh, about you is how you took out of respect, uh, your mother's name, um, after your dad abandoned the family and your mom sounds like a pretty remarkable woman. There's a lot of consultants out there that make a lot of money coaching kids into Harvard, but your mom figured out how to raise two of them. Oh yeah. No, well, I mean, she threatened, she, she threatened to kill us. I mean, that's, that's what, you know, moms do, which, which helps a lot. No, she's, I mean, she's an amazing and motivated um, ass kicker, you know, and, um, it, you know, when I saw her working as hard as she could just to keep the family together, you know, that inspired me when, uh, you know, she didn't know much about Harvard or, or about, you know, college, but she did, you know, have two beliefs, right? Number one, she believed in her kids. And number two, she also had a fundamental belief in the fairness of this country. That if you know my kids keep their knees, their uh, their nose clean, they get good grades, that they're going to be able to succeed. And those are the two things that helped, I think, motivate her to push us. And you know, one of the I, I tell this all the time on the campaign show. Like, if you want to know a good example of the American dream, the American story, you know, if you had gone to the little apartment that we were living in 25 years ago, 
It was me, my three sisters, and my mother. In that apartment, there was nobody with a college degree. You know, 25 years later, if you come to one of our family uh, dinners, and you better be ready because we're very loud, we have, you know, one, two, three, four college degrees. And fifth, because my mom went back to school and got her college degree after she put all the kids through. And then we also have an another sister who has a master's degree. I have another sister who's a doctor and, uh, you know, deals with blood cancer. Uh, so guess who's the real cool one in the family? It's not the congressman. I have a sister who, you know, runs uh, a, a book publishing company. So this is a, you know, this is a family that is successful because of a combination of, you know, a, a strong family unit led by a, a strong woman. But also, there was a government at that point that also believed in kids like us, right? We were on the free lunch program. I went to school on Pell Grants, Stafford Loans, uh, work, work program. Uh, you know, they they believed in that kids that, you know, didn't come from the best uh, or the the highest rung of society should have an opportunity to rise. And for that, I will always be grateful. And, you know, it wasn't easy. You know, we lived in an apartment. We sacrificed so we could stay in a better part of Chicago. We lived in a small suburb called Evergreen Park that had decent schools. And uh, the only way we could afford to stay there was for someone to not have a bedroom. And so I slept on the floor for many years. And, uh, you know, college was my first bed in quite a while. And I was very excited about it. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot, obviously, that could have gone better growing up, but it's also important to be grateful for what you have. When, when people talk about loving their country, one of the things I've said is that it's very difficult to love your country if you hate half the people in it. <laughs> um, but, but talk about love of country. What does that mean yeah. to you? Well, I, you know, I, you know, people actually say that to me all the time. Like, how do you, you know, because I, I, I do go after Trump and 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 Mata people, but I love everybody. I mean, like my Marine Corps friends that are like brothers to me. I mean, if if I pulled, I think probably half at a minimum would be Trump supporters, and I still love them. And there's, you know, they just are Trump supporters, and they're not necessarily as extreme as some. Um, and so. You know, I think it's important to always give everyone a chance in this country and and give everyone politically a chance, even if you don't agree with them. Uh, but number two, even if you don't agree with them, doesn't mean you can't be friends. You know, at some level, you know, it, they might have some core values that you both can ascribe to. And I found that separate piece with some of my friends that are re strong Republicans, but they're, you know, not hateful. Uh, you know, they're strong Republicans, but do believe in the Constitution, the idea of, you know, uh, the passage of government from one hand to another. I believe January 6th was a atrocity upon this country. Um, and, uh, you know, we we find ways to to get along. And, and I'm fine with that. But I also think that if you love this country, you love it no matter what. And it doesn't mean you forget about the problems. You you understand that there's problems and you try to get those, get them fixed. You try to fix it. Because you believe in this longer idea of this more perfecting country. And if you do believe that this is a country that's always kind of perfecting itself, then you should be part of that and not just try to reject it and kind of go into your little corner and create your little safe space. And I say that for Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to give up on this country. This country <clears throat> never gave up on me. And for us just to say, well, things are bad, things are rough, 
everyone hates each other. Let's just give up on it. It's ridiculous. You know, there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of men and women that have sacrificed themselves uh, to keep this country alive and and moving forward. And, you know, we shouldn't be the first generation to give up on this grand experiment. I think I think that when we look at the Trump era, um, as you get older, you relate to time differently. Um, you know, seven years is a long time for an 18 year old. Um, it's not so long to me anymore at 52, but it's been almost 10 years since Trump came down the escalator, um, really asserted himself into national life. Um, there was a moment in time where Republicans and Democrats largely stood in complete united revulsion around this man and the things he said. Mm -hmm. I was in the Republican Party for 29 years. At one moment, everybody was never Trump. And then one by one, by one by one by one, all the way until we have an insurrection and literally you have Adam Kitzinger and Liz Cheney. There are two left, right? So the the absence of love, I think, produces a type of moral cowardice. And I want to ask you about moral cowardice, the capitulation of so many across a party to their oaths. Yeah. Um, looking, putting themselves on the record, whether it's Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, every one of these people knew exactly who Trump was, talked about it, but every single one of them submitted, collaborated, and, and became stooges to him. Do, do you think that that is possible to happen inside the Democratic Party could a, could a could a demagogue like Trump rise in the Democratic Party, or do you think the institution is different enough, diverse enough, that it's more insulated from yeah. from that type of that type yeah, of it's, virus? It's, it's not the institution, because um, all institutions can be corrupted it, by by nature. If you have any organization that can have power, it can actually be corrupted. It's just that's it. It's the people uh, of, that make up the Democratic Party because we are so different, right? One of the hardest things about being a Democrat is for us to put a coalition together to win, right? Every year we have to get young people out, our labor people out, African-American voters, Latino voters, our LGBT community, you, you name it, right? And the diversity of, of that community, right? They don't listen to the same TV stations. They don't listen to the same news. They don't, you know, even speak the same language. When I say speak the same language, they speak English, but they're speaking very different languages and they have very, very different experiences in life. And so demagogues, when they take over, they are largely taking over uniform societies that have, I think, very much centralized messaging um, course, right? So if you see it, you know, it's not just the United States, by the way, but the history of of a demagogue taking power, they have a couple of things in common. Very much uniform societies, massive communications uh, networks that they control, uh, and uh, you know economic times that actually gives rise to that to anxiety. 
I think in, in the case of Trump, there was a combination of economic times and also demographic anxiety that was able to kind of feed, feed through that. And so that's what happened. But there is no excuse, though, for the politicians that have been cowards about it. You don't have to go through with this. You don't have to be a part of it. Um, you don't have to also be a martyr, but you certainly don't have to be uh, a part of it and being a cheerleader. And some of the people that I've seen that become uh, a cheerleader for this kind of, you know, autocracy, neurotocracy of this hit, uh, has been disturbing. And, you know, for me, you know, I, I always kind of make, you know, my, uh, my observation on, on making decisions and I'm not talking about everyday decisions, you know, everyday politicians do have to make an opportunity cost analysis of what they should, should not be doing versus long-term fights. But sometimes, sometimes, uh, there are, and, and, and hopefully you never have to make those choices. You have to make a choice about who you are and who you're going to be for the rest of your life. And for me, I had to make that choice, unfortunately, at a very young age. I had to decide whether I was going to be a coward or not, if I was going to stay behind uh, and find a reason to get out of the Iraq war. Um, or even when I was in Iraq, I had to make a decision whether or not I was going to stay uh, safely you know, uh, in, in you know, my, my bunker or safely behind a wall when you know, people started shooting at us, when terrorists started shooting at us. I had to make that decision and make this decision, what did, who did I want to be for the rest of my life? If I survived, and I realized that at that young age of twenty at twenty five, that I didn't want to live the rest of my life knowing that when the country asked me to do the the best that I could be, or when I needed to be the person that I that I always thought I was going to be, someone that was you know brave and and therefore his you know fellow countrymen, that I was going to fail them. I didn't. I couldn't do it. So uh, I, I couldn't run away, and I went and I did my job. And so for, for politics, it's easy for me because I made that decision early on uh, that I was not going to be that type of person that couldn't look themselves in the face and, and, and shy away from, you know, from, from some tough situations. And what happens right now, at least politicians, is that they're, they, they, don't, they don't understand what they're doing to themselves. And they're not, they don't understand what they're doing to, to their country. You know, I, I said this on the night of... Um, January 6th, uh, after we got back to the floor, where that, you know, it, I can't remember exactly what I said, but it said, tell me that there's very few times in this life where the country asks you to be pure and to be strong. This is one of them. This is a message to my Republicans, my brother friends. And it was so disappointing to see them not understand, not seize the moment, because, you know, very, very few times people actually get that opportunity and, and they lost it. So I'm going to, I couldn't I couldn't agree I couldn't agree more with everything you said right there. Um when you when you think about Kristen Cinema, um you talked about her being disconnected. As a general proposition, most members of Congress are not particularly difficult to figure out. Um you are in a in a in a rare kind of minority in my view in that you're a genuine bona fide idealist uh you're a person who gratitude gratitude means something to you are you are a bona fide patriot you're exactly the type of person Thanks. before you even get to your voting record just as a matter of character all of the all of the things there 
I've never been able to quite figure her out, uh, where she's coming from. And I don't think I'm alone in that. But um, I think her senatorial term, if I had to use a word, uh, um, dilettante. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, you're when you're elected and you're elected by the people, um, the most important thing you could do is just be responsive. And um, look, I everyone likes having fun, likes doing, uh, you know, spending time with their family, spending time with their friends. Um, I don't ever falter for that. Uh, but you need to be responsive to the people that put you there. That is the, you know, the social contract of politics, the basics. And I think the fact well, that- leadership too, right? I mean, it's, you know, Marine officers eat last. Well, it's, it's even, it's not even, you can't be a leader if you don't understand who you're serving. If you, if you, if you don't, you know, you'll never be able to really be a leader if you don't really understand who puts you in power and why you are there. Right. One of the things that they teach us, you know, in the Marine Corps is that you, you know, leadership, it comes from accountability. And when you are not holding yourself accountable, then you definitely aren't, you don't, you're not leading anybody, you know? And, and I think a lot of politicians lie to themselves and say that they are leaders, but when in fact they're, they're not, they're just, there pressing a little button there. Um, so she, you know, we don't have to have her, you know, explain to any of us, you know, her, you know, her psyche valve or anything else like that. She just needs to be responsive to voters. And like any politician needs to be responsive to voters. I mean, I'll be, like, I think I have a town hall at the end of this month, right? I'm going to be there. They're going to ask me everything that, you know, underneath the the moon. And, you know, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of people nodding their heads. And I'm sure there's going to be 20% of people that uh, disagree with me. But you need to put yourself out there. It, it's your job. I mean, it's your basic, basic job. What's the toughest vote you've taken in your career? I think the JCPOA bill was probably the hardest one for me. Um, obviously, it's a, a big national, sorry, the Iran nuclear deal. That was very difficult for me. Um, you know, as someone that had to dodge some of the Iranian um, uh, IEDs uh, in Iraq, uh, and then having to deal with this reality that, you know, do we get into this deal with them and contain Iran and, and hopefully stop us from really triggering and rolling into a war? Or do we try to use other methods to exert, you know, uh, some power with them and hopefully really move back? And the way that it was kind of breaking out in the conversations out there was that this, this deal to Iran was too generous. It only empowered them. Um, you know, there was conversations among veterans and veterans community that we can't do this because we're, it's a payoff to them after they killed so many of us, uh, our men. And, um, you know, it was my it was my first big vote. I had just gotten elected. You know, so there was a lot of pressure, political pressure, also being exerted. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, I just couldn't I couldn't give peace a chance. And that's the one thing I thought about. I couldn't give it a chance. I couldn't give it a chance that maybe if we actually get into this agreement uh, with Iran and other countries, that we may avoid uh, another war in the Middle East. Because I always think that war is always an option. 
But once you get to war, it's it's tough to come back from war. But you know, if you if you can hold on to peace as long as possible, then then there's then there's hope. And I you know I, I had to think about it just a lot. Um, and I was probably one of the last people to vote on it. I mean, the, the you know we had I had a lot of uh, you know people call me from the you know the apex of the world. Had you know the president you know also calling me, the vice president calling me. Uh, you know, eventually it was you know conversations with some of the guys that I served with that uh, made me realize um, that, you know, I'm going to give peace a chance. When I say the guys, I serve as my, my friends that are buried at Arlington. Um, it was my conversation with them um, <clears throat> that made me uh, decide that I was going to give this approach because I just didn't want to see, you know, another Middle East war. Um, if I could It's work. the fundamentally, and I, and I hope everyone who is watching this will take that away, is that we have an absence, a dearth of wisdom in the highest elected offices in the land. And what you just said is profoundly, profoundly important. And one of the great lessons of the 21st century, which is that it's a lot easier for this country to start wars than it is for us to end them. A hundred. Yep. You too. Peace. <laughs> Peace is hard, uh, but it's cheap. War to start is easy. Um, but very expensive, and I'm not just talking about uh, money. We have a we have a couple minutes left. I wanted to ask you: when you look down the road, where do you seek for this country to be twenty years from now, twenty five years from now? What what is your hope for America, quarter century from now? Look, I mean, I think we're always going to be a country that is. In, 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 I would say, in a conversation. Right now, we're in conflict. It doesn't have to be that way. I think we can have great American values with, you know, different viewpoints, you know, Democrats, Republicans, independents, you know, by then there's probably be more parties. Um, but, I, you know, what I'm hoping is there's going to be a basic understanding between everybody that we're all American, we're all in this boat together, uh, and that when one side of America is doing better, is doing well, it doesn't mean that you're going to do worse. Um, and that, you know what, we may be different, but doesn't mean that I hate you because of your difference. You know, if anything, it should be something that we respect. And right now, it's too easy for us to hate each other because we're we're different. And it and and people whoop they pull us apart uh because of that. There's people that now that make profit uh from you know, Americans hating other Americans, both political profit and actual real monetary profit. And I just hope that this country, you know, 20 years from now, and we'll all be talking about, uh, you know, some very mundane shit uh, and really having, you know, conversations uh, about, uh, you know, where we should, again, still be going as a country, because I think we'll always be trying to perfect ourselves. But this day of existential threats, where if the Democrats win, Republicans are, you know, Republicans are over or where Republicans win, Democrats feel it's all over. I, I don't want to, I don't want our country feeling that way. I want us to feel someday like, man, the Republicans just, you know, just took control of the Congress. Well, it's going to be a little difficult, but at least we'll always feel like, you know what, it's still going to be a democratic country. We're going to be fine. Uh, we'll just have to try to win the next time around. When I want the Republicans to feel the same way when Democrats are around, that, that this country is not going to 
die on the grapevine because you know we got elected and i and um you know and i think most americans want that i don't think americans want to live in this world where um every two two years they feel like it's a you know catalytic catalytic uh occurrence about to happen because most of them did not grow up that way i don't think i will want my kids growing up that way i still think fundamentally that's the way that um, this country was was even created within that vision of, of, of what we were supposed to be doing. Last thing I wanted to ask you is just to react to the historic indictment of a former president of the United States, 37 uh, specific charges, seven counts on the on the yeah. indictment. Um, tragic day for the country. Yeah, thank you for saying that, by the way. Um, I think there's been a, too much... Um, a lot of people that are very excited about this. And like, look, I'm not a Trump supporter. I've never been a Trump supporter. I've always been one of the first people that was on the floor of the House of Representatives right after the elections, warning about the danger of what was coming. But this is a tragic day. This is a day that that I'm glad happened, but I'm glad it happened because we should believe in the rule of law. That's what should be cheered on. We shouldn't cheer the fact that a former president conducted himself in a manner that he brought that he brought this. Um, we should be ruling, we should be cheering that there's going to be due process for this American uh, and that he is going to have every opportunity to uh, represent himself. And I'm here to support the the rule of law and due process. Uh, but it is not a good day that this has occurred. And I hope it never happens again. I hope that our leaders look at this as a really good example and they understand that no one's above the rule of law, Democrats or Republicans. And I really wish that some of my Republican colleagues, if you're not going to say that, if you're not going to say, you know, I, you know, every, this is a very serious event. Let's let the judicial process carry itself out. That's what we're saying, by the way. That's I'm sorry. That's what I'm saying. That just don't say anything, because by going and cheering it on and, and questioning everything, you're not helping Trump. You're hurting the rule of law, one of the core tenets that has kept this country together. And that's the most important thing that needs to come out of this. Whatever happens with this uh, indictment uh, and the process about to happen, the rule of law has to has to come out as the premier winner of this because we will be stronger as a country in the long run. I, I would just say one thing, I and I, I was going to leave it there, but it's a, it's incredible to read the stories in the indictment. Because they all come around back to one thing that you talked about in the beginning with the drill instructor when he slapped the notepad out of your hand. He said, I told you to pick up a piece of paper. And the concept here is Trump wanted these documents. Yep. They did everything they could to ask, ask nicely, 40 times, give them back, give them back. And he wouldn't give them back. And and as somebody who's walked into the Oval Office, was a White House staffer, um, what I find as I'm the person who placed the phone call from John McCain to Barack Obama to concede the election, um, what I find most incredible psychologically is is apparently there, were, there was no one, not not one person in the, in the Republican Party of any stature who, who could look Donald Trump in the eye, kind of just maybe you have to do it alone, look left, look right. Say, you fucking lost. You lost. You lost the election. I don't know what to tell you. Right? More people voted for the other guy. It happens. 
It's one of the two possible outcomes if you volunteer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hopefully I never have that outcome, but <laughs> I, I, look, I'll, I'll be honest. Like, I think a lot of politicians, it's not just Trump, you know, they surround themselves with yes men and yes women. And they they created this culture around them that is basically like a little bubble culture that allows them to, you know, do whatever they want. Uh, and, you know, it, it's a really, it's a mark of a horrible leader, by the way, that does that. A, a leader is not afraid of criticism. They're certainly not afraid of people giving them, you know, direction. And, you know, Trump was never a leader. Trump was never in his life had ever been a leader because, you know, he basically was a bully that got to power one way or the other, whether it was politics or whether it was uh, business. And, you know, there was never a check uh, on on that type of power until he hit, you know, the one area where there is a check, and that's called the people of the United States. So, um, you know, you are who you surround yourself with. That's all I have to say. And uh, in my world, I have so many uh, no men and women that I sometimes have to fight just for yes, but that's a good thing. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Um, I'll just say this, you know, to people that are watching, you want to fix some American politics you need to elect leaders leaders like this guy Ruben Gallego with website take on big media you take on big business you take on big tech and you stand up for the little guy they try to silence you by drowning you in campaign donations to your opponent so if you're gonna fight for the little guy which Ruben Gallego does every day what that means is that he needs support from regular people out there, a couple bucks at a time. And so so we'll be talking more about this campaign here on The Warning. It's one to watch. This is a national leader on the rise, an important voice. And let me just say in conclusion, uh, we could do a lot worse off than having a retired Lance Corporal from the United States Marine Corps, an infantry Marine in the United States Senate. Uh, Congressman, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Steve. That says you have a good one. You bet. Yes.